Again, good morning and welcome to you. Uh, grateful for every chance that I really get uh, to um, share God's word. Um, it's really, it's really a humbling thing, right? To be, um, to have that opportunity, to have that chance, and something that um, I know that I don't take very lightly. Um, and I hope that you, as you come on a Sunday. Um, would be uh, ready uh, with expectation for what God might speak to all of us here uh, uh, this morning. So if you're like me and you, uh, and you grew up in church, um, and maybe in a church that did regular Sunday preaching um, of God's Word, then you have probably heard a lot of sermons, right? This is probably not your first rodeo. Right? You have heard more than a few preachings, if you will. All right? How many do you think you have heard? I did some math. Now, that could be dangerous because it's not, not a great idea. So I approximated that I probably had the capacity to start, you know, remembering things. Going back to my first memories that I can remember around, you know, around five years old, let's say, right? Now, whether I was actually paying attention to sermons in church when I was a kid, I don't know about that. My mom is here. You can ask her if I was paying attention after the service. You can ask. Um, but let's just say, from five years old to now almost 42 years old, although the past few years, the sermons I've been hearing in church are my own, so I don't know if we can count those, but five from five to 37, five to um, 42, that's 37 years, 37 years. 52 Sundays a year, right? So how many sermons? 37 times 52. Where are my nerds this morning? Anybody? 37 times 52? 53? That's probably <laughs> 1,872. 1,872 sermons. It's coming on some 2,000 sermons. Something like that. That's a lot. And I asked myself, what do I remember? What do I remember from these sermons? I think back, and I'm sure I've absorbed a lot. You know, I'm sure I've learned many things. But as I stop and I try and think about specific sermons that I've heard, or a specific word or a statement that I've heard, or I, where I can remember where I was sitting and, and what I felt in that moment and where I was and what day it was and all those, maybe a handful, maybe a handful of those I can actually uh, remember. One of those I can remember, I can't, I can't exactly remember how old I was, but and it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't the main sermon of the of the day, it was an exhortation that was given by someone that was visiting uh, at the church, um, and they said a statement that just for whatever reason has stuck out. I can remember it very, very vividly. Now, this person was from not from here; they were actually from uh, from England, so they actually had sort of a muddled English. British accent, so I don't know if that was part of what made it stick in my mind, or just the downright kind of in-your-face, 
or sort of peculiar statement that it was. I don't know if it was a combination of those things or not, but they said something, and I can remember it clear as day. It rings in my ears even to this day. And what did he say? Simply it was this. Sheep are dumb animals. Sheep are dumb animals. I was going to do it in my British accent, but I didn't want to embarrass myself this way. I'm not a great idea, right? Sheep are dumb animals. That has stuck with me out of the 2,000 some odd sermons I've heard. That's one line. It just stuck with me. Now, in the moment, I think maybe it stuck with me because I just, it just, it hit me in my face like that's not something you hear um, every day. As I grew, I, 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 I got a connection to that, that statement because, one, I understood that I was a sheep. <coughs> Over time, I understood, yep, I was a sheep, and that I was pretty dumb, right? So uh, I connected with it very well. But then also that in spite of my sheepiness and my dumbness, that I had a good shepherd who cared for me and loved me in spite of me and looked after me. Uh, so those words sort of uh, resonated with me as I, as I grew and as I, as I got older. The internet is a marvelous thing. Social media is kind of an amazing thing. Uh, it's good for good and for bad. Um, but as I was, you know, tracing around uh, on social media, I found a, a, you probably might have seen this too, this, this meme that perfectly encapsulates, perfectly encapsulates that statement, right? right. We're going to watch it here. I don't know if you've seen this. Probably seen it. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. There's a sheep. Rescued. There it goes. Sheep are dumb animals, right? Pretty stark. And I, and I saw that, I was like, yep, yep, that's exactly right. I think of, I, and I think of ourselves, right? We are, um, we're in a predicament, we're in a bind, we're stuck, and there our shepherd is, one, trying to, trying to help us out of it, and then what do we do? First, we fight against that. Then once we are you know, rescued out of that, what do we do? Hop, 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 boom. We go right back in. Now, I don't know about you, when you, when you, when you watched that and you saw that sheep go, I don't know what your thought pattern was or your feeling was towards the sheep. I was an idiot when I saw that. That's what I, that's what I thought. So Jesus, in the passage that we read, Jesus, in the passage that we read, he comes and he sees some sheep. That was not his response. That was not his response. He had a different response when he looked upon the sheep that he saw. So, um, as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen in Jesus' teaching ministry, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, and then... In his healing ministry, which we kind of call the Sermon on the Move in chapters 8 and 9, what have we seen? We've seen how our Lord has been like a good shepherd to Israel. He has healed 
and protected and led his flock in the way that they should go. And yet we know that Jesus is, is headed in a certain direction. He's steadily marching where? Towards the crucifixion. He knows that he will ultimately do what? Lay his life down for the sheep. This ultimate act of compassion. And he also knows as he's on his, this journey that he must provide for the flock, leaving some under-shepherds to continue that care and to protect and to heal. And we saw that he's going to commission his 12 disciples and, and, and send them out. But before Jesus provides these 12 with the, with the how of the mission, with the, with the means of the mission, what does he do first? He demonstrates the motive of the mission. The why of the mission. And it's explicitly described in chapter 9, verse 36. That verse is sort of a, a door that transitions us from this first part of the gospel into this next part of the gospel. But what we see in verse 36 and 37 there is that this is really the cornerstone of the mission of the church. So in verse 35 and 36, quickly again, we'll just read it. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That was Jesus' reaction when he saw them. So if we go into the original Greek here and look at that word for compassion, where it said that he had compassion for the people, the verb in the original Greek is splenizomai. Right? Try saying that one five times. Fast, a little rough, right? Splenizomai. It literally means Right? The literal translation is to feel in the viscera. To feel in your bowels, in your guts. Right? It's one of those words where you almost have to feel it there to say it, right? It's like meat so right? You're like, oh, I can feel it, right? I think often we often think of feeling with our hearts. I think Typically, we, we feel, we think that way, right? What we say, you know, they broke my heart. But we're not, I don't think we're totally unaccustomed to thinking about our, you know, our, our, our guts as where our emotions are coming from. Especially when you're talking about hatred or disgust, right? Sometimes we kind of connect that with down here. Right, I hate him all oh my guts, right? You kind of feel it down there. I remember many years ago, I was driving late at night, um, coming home. It was really like dark, windy sort of road, and a possum just jumped out. Humongous possum. Could not do anything to miss it, and just went right through it. I didn't look back to see the mess that I had caused, but I, I felt, I felt that down here when that happened. 
I think at times our emotions, be it hatred, disgust, but also at times pity, love, compassion, sort of make their way down into, into our viscera and the core of, of our, ourselves physically. So here in verse 36, what does it mean when Jesus says he has compassion for these people? In the Greek sense of the word, what does he, what does he do? He feels for them. He feels for them. And in the Latin sense of the word, compassion means that he suffers with compassion. Passion means suffer, com, prefix meaning with compassion. He suffers with. He feels for, suffers with the crowd. Why does he have compassion? Because they were what? Harassed and helpless. They were harassed physically, mostly perhaps, right? I'm sure many in the crowd were surely poor or sick or hungry. But they were also harassed spiritually. And here, Jesus is sort of giving a subtle indictment of the, the Jewish religious leaders at the time. They were not caring for the people. They were not properly feeding the flock, protecting the flock. But these quote-unquote shepherds were actually harassing, oppressing the flock. In the words of Jesus later in Matthew chapter 23, they would tie up heavy burdens on and lay them on the people's shoulders. Jesus saw that they were helpless. That he didn't know how or weren't able to lift off those burdens that those religious leaders were putting on them. All those unbiblical things they were adding onto the scriptures, onto their backs. All those things back in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that he was attacking and clarifying and making clear. They were helpless. And Jesus was the, who? The ultimate shepherd. And as the ultimate shepherd, he sought after the lost, brought in those who were strayed, bound up the injured, strengthened the weak. And Jesus now here, he feels deep down for this crowd. Now, there are times in Jesus' ministry when he is grieved and upset with what he sees. Just a few chapters from now, he's going to speak of the generation and of the time and call them evil and adulterous. But here, now, in this moment, here in 936, there is but the compassion. Right? He doesn't look at, out of the crowd like we looked at that sheep. He doesn't look out at the crowd and say, look at you. So astray. You, just, you make me sick. No, there's a longing here to care for <laughs> the sheep. So, there's a mission, no doubt. Jesus is a king. He has a kingdom. And there is a mission that goes along with the kingdom. That that kingdom would grow. That more would come. 
citizens of that kingdom. There's a mission. But what is the motive? What is the motive for the mission? Compassion. Compassion is the cornerstone of the mission. And Christian mission, it starts with compassion. This compassion of Christ that I hope that you see here and I hope that you have felt here in this passage. I think sometimes, though, we hear compassion and we go, yeah, of course, yeah, compassion. Of course, we're Christians, compassion. I think sometimes we just take that, that cornerstone of compassion for granted. Like if we somehow got rid of it, the whole thing would have crumbled down. Or that, you know, hey, you know, yeah, we're just one of many religions where compassion is the, is the cornerstone. It's the you know, same, basically the same structure. But it's not true. For us, it's very normal to say God is love, and that we love God. For us to speak the way Paul speaks in Galatians two twenty about the Son of God who who loved me, Paul says that. This is all very normal for us. But go out into other faith streams and try and talk about the personal love of God in any sort of way. It's not going to quite resonate. Go into other faith streams and ask if the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Which includes love your enemies as much as you love yourself. That God is love and, and that such a God of love because of the great love with which he has loved us, we see in Ephesians 2, 4. That he would love the world that he would send his one and only son to live, suffer, and die, and then take what? Lowly fishermen, you saw the list, of the disciples, lowly fishermen, sinful tax collectors, discarded and discounted women, even Gentiles, and choose them to spread his compassion through them. All of that is com completely remarkable and utterly unique. That is uniquely Christian compassion. So don't take such compassion for granted. Don't take it for granted as the motive of the mission. But think of Paul. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, he was compelled by what? The love of Christ. Compelled. Compelled to reach the world. So let's, let's never forget our motive for mission, that the force pushing us forward, the, what, is, what is that underneath our feet to bring the good news through preaching, through teaching, through healing, through restoration, the motive is compassion. Without compassion, without compassion, we don't have Christianity. Without compassion, we do not, without compassion, we do not have an authentic Christian mission. We don't. So, the motive 
for our mission is compassion. Well, what are the means? Right? The why is compassion of the mission. What is the how? What are the means of the mission? Well, we see it in verse 37 38. What are the means? The means are prayer and people. 37 and 38, it says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, people, into his harvest. What's the means? What's the how of the mission? There's a need for prayer and there's a need for people. Or, if you look at it as the need for the Lord of the harvest through our prayers to send out people, individuals, pastors, laborers, missionaries, whoever it may, may, might be. If you look in the book of Acts, there's a lot that the book of Acts has to say about mission, about Christian mission. And there's a lot that the book of Acts has to say about growth, church growth. And there's a lot that people have to say today about church growth, right? It's pretty fascinating. Uh, so you think, think of us here, right, endeavoring to plant a church in, 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 in a place and, and grow a church. Um, if you look out, there are so many kinds of conversations of uh, here, you know, here are the five the top things that you need to do to grow a church, right? Here are the ten critical things that you need to do to grow a church. Here are the top three apps that you need to grow your church, right? There's all this conversation, all this, all this around here. Now, if you look in the book of Acts, though, if you look in the book of Acts, there is a recipe or an equation will, getting back to some math again, dangerous for me, but I'm going to try, right? There, there's, a, there's an equation, if, if you will, about church growth, right? If you look in the book of Acts, you can kind of piece it together. And here it is, right? It's three Ps. It's very simple. Prayer plus preaching plus persecution equals growth. That's what you see in the book of of acts. Prayer, preaching, persecution, church growth. Now, that's what we see in Acts, and that's really what you see in the first three centuries of the church. And it's what you see throughout church history whenever the church is genuinely growing. It's what you see in places in the world today where there is stark growth. Places like China. It's really remarkable. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 10. So next week we're going to delve into chapter 10 as Jesus is going to send out the apostles. What we'll see is that the kingdom of God advances through persecution, through preaching, and through prayer. So the motive for the mission? Compassion. The means, prayer, and people. Prayer and people. 
now. I try, as I, every time as we come to read scripture, to we should be trying to read it afresh. Right? Trying to read it with fresh <coughs> There are times I think that we come to scripture and if we've read it a bunch or we're familiar with it, we get kind of close to it. But I think it's good to come with fresh eyes. So I, I, I came and I, and I read, read what Jesus says here. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers or people into his harvest. So I tried to come at it in this way. Okay. So, there's a big harvest. But there's a problem. What's the problem? Big harvest, but there's a big problem. What's the problem? Not enough harvesters. Not enough harvesters for the big harvest. What is Jesus' solution? Pray for more people. Now, I stopped there for a moment and I said, wait a minute, Lord, I just read through chapters 8 and 9. We've gone through chapters 8 and 9. But what did we see in chapters 8 and 9? We just watched you have authority over what? Everything visible and invisible, right? Demons, diseases, sin, you name it. You have power over it. But now there's a harvest and there aren't enough harvesters and you're saying, pray for people. Why not cut out the why not cut out the middleman here? <laughs> why ask people to pray for more people to reach all these people? Why don't just you, as the Lord of the harvest, just do all the harvesting? What, what might it be? Well, first, if you look throughout scripture. God is a God of, of means and ways. See, he, he is absolutely transcendent above us, beyond us. And yet, he is what? Compassionate. So what? He desires to be near us. Completely transcendent and apart from us, yet compassionate and desires to be near to us. So he uses people and prayers. He uses even his own son. God does not sit on high on the throne and zap all our sins away. He sends his son in our very flesh to touch blind eyes and crippled legs and dead bodies and sin-stained souls. So when you think about why, it's, it's really about, we have to think about the attributes of God. It's really part of who God is and how he has decided to work in this world. The second thing we can think about is that God has been working out a plan. And there are means that involves that plan, right? Jesus' mission is to what? Live, suffer, die rise again, ascend into heaven, and then to give the Holy Spirit and rule from heaven until he returns. In the meantime, he will build his church 
on the foundation of the apostles. So you can think of it this way. Jesus is sort of building a bridge from his ministry to the ministry that will continue after him in his name. And right here in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, where we see the disciples listed, we find it's kind of that first sort of plank on that bridge that's, that's kind of bridging this gap. Up until this point, the disciples, what have they been, what have they been doing? Kind of sitting, watching, listening, hearing. Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. They're sitting, they're listening. Chapters 8 and 9, Jesus has been healing and, and counseling and restoring. These disciples, what have they been doing? They're, they're watching. And now, these disciples who have been sitting on the sidelines, on the bench, right? You play sports, right? They've been just sit, sitting on the bench. What happened? What's going to happen now? We're going to get some playing time. Right? No more bench. Right? No more, you know, just carrying the towels and the water. It's like, oh, you're going in. Right? But why? Because in time, these disciples, right, they will what? They will teach and heal and lead God's sheep. We can also think about the fact that God is at work, and He is at work through these means, right? Usually, when you hear uh, sermons on this passage here, um, you know that you know the harvest is plentiful, but labors are few. Pray for earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors to His harvest. Usually, the messages go one of two ways: either there's a very self-glorifying sort of feel to it, where it's like, you know. If it's going to happen, it's up to me. Like it's, it's all up to me. Right? That's usually the vibe of a lot of the sermons that you will hear on, on, this, on this passage. That's, that's one side. The other side is the negative side, which is the guilt-ridden weight attached to it, which is like if you don't pray, if you don't um, go yourself, God's hands are tied. And then who's responsible for this huge harvest that's going to spoil and rot? You. Right? Usually it goes one of those two ways. Right? This passage is often preached that like it's all about the church and just the church. It's just, 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 just getting our act together in terms of mission. I think we got to stop and let's look fresh again at the text here. Who is doing the work here? Right? The first laborers are going to go out into the field in chapter 10. But in our text, it's the Lord of the harvest. The Lord of the harvest. It's the one, he's the one who what? Has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's the one that's going to give the great commission to these twelve at the end of this gospel. So who is the main worker here in the text? See, in, in, in chapter 9, verse 38, Jesus says, pray. 
But before anyone has prayed, he gets to work. Right? In chapter 10, verse 1, he calls and commissions these 12. And that's what he just asked to be done and prayed for, isn't it? Is Jesus is the one who's going to send these, these 12 out. You're going to see it later on in chapter 10, verse 5. So let me put it this way. Jesus was already at work before they were at work or at prayer. And that's the case here, but that is the case always. That is the case always. It is pretty remarkable. I mean, when you think about the Great Commission, And if you look into the book of the Gospel of Matthew, the beginning of the book of Acts, you can see call to go out into all the world to preach the gospel, to teach what it is that Christ taught them, to baptize, to grow the church. Now you think about that and you go, wow, that's, that's, that's a big, that's a tall order, right? That's a big thing. But I like to think of it this way. Look, look at us sitting here. Right? Why are, how are we here? Why are we here? Right? The, the church which begins there have to grow and spread. For many of us, our ancestors, those who came before us, are they anywhere near Jerusalem? Are they anywhere near the epicenter of this? No. And yet, look, we are here. Worshiping God together. Lifting His name, praising His name of the one true God. So when you think about the, the Great Commission, you go, wait, look what God has already done. Look what God has already done. That the harvest is huge. Yes. But in the last 2,000 years, Jesus, through his church, has harvested millions of people. See, this prayer, this prayer, has been answered, is being answered, and will continue to be answered until the last day. In the Apostles' Day, there was a huge mission field. Think about it. Huge mission field, hardly any workers. What did it start with? Twelve. By the end of the book of Acts, there was still a huge mission field, but now a few thousand workers, right, spreading out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Rome. And today, there's still a huge mission field, perhaps, but now what? Millions of workers and counting reaching the ends of the earth. Jesus has been busy, hasn't he? The church will grow despite serious opposition from the world. And we talk about harvesting. That doesn't mean everyone, everywhere, at all times becomes Christians. But the church will surely grow. As we come to close this morning, 
even though the Lord of the harvest has harvested, is harvesting, and will continue to harvest, that doesn't mean that prayer and people aren't the means by which he harvests. The Lord of the harvest has chosen to use prayer and people to harvest the fields. So you might look at the task this morning. Right? You might look at the task and you, you know, might be feeling overwhelmed by the prospect. Right? You might think and go, ah, you know, this is this is this is a big, this is big. This harvest is too hard, it's too big, it's too impossible for us. What do we say? What do we do? What, what can we do? I would say, don't, don't, don't worry. Trust in the Lord of the harvest. Trust in the Lord and in the power of his might. But also, this morning you might be feeling guilty. You might feel guilty maybe about not praying. Right? You hear, well, the means are prayer and people. And you go, well, I'm not, no, I haven't been praying. You might feel guilty about not praying. You might be guilty about your connection to that mission and how in your life you have expressed that and and in your relationships and in, in your communities and in the, in the people that are around you. You might, you might feel that way. You might feel guilty about not praying, about not going. Because our mission is to pray and go. And I'd say, yeah, you can feel that way. But when guilt is just unto itself, then we have nowhere to go. So we can feel guilty, but we have something amazing we can do with that guilt. We can confess it. We can confess that. It's really a remarkable thing. That we don't just have to be weighed down with that, that we can confess that. So we feel guilty, but we confess it, and then what do you think we should start doing? Pray. Start praying. Or start going, right? Start thinking about ways that you can, with your circle of influence, bring uh, bring the mission to life. Or start praying as you start going, even better. See, Jesus has built his church, is building his church, and will build his church. And what do we know? that all the powers of hell will not prevail against it. What a remarkable hope. Jesus is at work. Jesus is at work. He's at work through your prayers and through you. How remarkable is that? That is the way that he has chosen to grow his kingdom. So as we think about the future, as you think about the future and think about what am I going to do? What is this going to look like? As we might step into uncharted territories of faith, uncharted territories of discipleship, 
I want you to remember this. You are not alone. You have a good shepherd. He sees you. He knows you. He cares for you. The compassionate shepherd. The Lord of the harvest. He walks with you.